Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and serve you and thank you for the opportunity now to study your word as we've worshipped you through song and prepared our hearts now to receive the truth of your word. I pray you would just open up the eyes of our hearts to hear from you, Lord, to understand you, to see your word and to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray you would give us the ability to know you, Father, to understand you in a deeper way. And I pray you would, through the power of the Spirit, Allow us to be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. We are going to continue our study, jump back into the book of Genesis this week. We took a week off last week so I could talk about missions. You saw the Lottie Moon Christmas offering video Let me just remind you, if you were not here last week, I'd encourage you, you can listen to the sermon on our website or on podcast, but the long and short of it is the International Mission Board that we're partnered with is low on funds. In fact, they're so low on funds that this next year, they're going to bring home between 600 and 18, between 600 and 800 missionaries worldwide. So we're going to go from about 4,800 missionaries around the world that the Southern Baptist Convention, we're part of that, that we fund fully. We're going to go from about 4,800 down to closer to 4,000. And so we prayed about this as a staff. We discussed this with leadership. And we believe that the Lord's calling us to do something a little bit different this year with the Light Moon Christmas offering. In the past, we've given about 18,000, 18,500 toward Lottie Moon. And by the way, Lottie Moon Christmas offering, every penny goes to missionaries overseas. We're going to go from giving 18,500, and this year we're going to set our goal for $51,400. That's almost triple what we've done in the past. We're doing that because 51400 is going to fund one missionary on the field for one year. So we're going to do our part. I'm not sure who else is going to step up. I'm not sure what other churches are going to do. We can't control them. That's between them and the Lord. But we can control what we do, and we're going to challenge ourselves. You say, I'm not sure we can reach 51.4. We've already had some checks come in the mail this week. So you start praying about what the Lord's going to do in your heart, how the Lord wants you to give, how the Lord wants you to be involved. Because we're going to continue to send teams We're going to continue to go, but we want to give as well. We want to give and we want to be generous in our giving, knowing that every penny we give is going to go to some missionary somewhere in the world to tell people about Jesus Christ. Because you need to understand this about the darkness of the world. There are over 2 billion people, now just follow with me, 2 billion people in the world that don't have 60 churches in their county like we do. You see what I'm saying? There are lots of people in the world that will be born, will live a long, healthy life, some healthy, some not, and will die without ever being presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? It's not as if they've chosen not to follow. They've never been given the option to follow. One of our teams left this week. We commissioned them last week to go to South India. They have arrived finally, and they are doing what the Lord's called them to do, and called them to be and they're going to be training church planners and for the next week you need to keep them in your prayers because they're going to be doing some incredible things in this part of the world there's great darkness and there are a lot of people that have never heard and so you pray for them you pray that the lord would use them you pray that the lord would just do great things in their lives and in their hearts 
And we're going to pray the Lord uses them for his honor and glory. Now, back to the book of Genesis. We took a week off last week, and I will just review where we were in the first part of chapter 19 because we're going to pick this up this week. We've been systematically studying through the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis 1, and have worked our way now through a good portion of the story of Abraham. A couple of weeks ago, we turned our attention to Lot and to what's going on in his life. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago in the beginning of Genesis chapter 19, the angels had arrived in the city of Sodom. They've shown up and they've seen for themselves the difficulty of the city. They've seen the wickedness. They've seen the evil. Just to, just to kind of jog your memory a little bit, the angels show up. Lot asks them to come and stay with him. They say, no, no, we're just going to go sleep in the, in the center of town, in the town square. And Lot, understanding the wickedness of the city, begs them. The Bible says he insists that they come and stay with him. So the two angels go to Lot's house. When they arrive there, the men of the city gather around. The Bible talks about a mob of people that surround the city and ask Lot to bring these men out so they can have relations with them. We talked about what that means. We talked about the wickedness of that situation. You remember Lot offers his daughters. And just kind of in the nick of time, the angels reach out and pull Lot back into his house, rescue him, save his family. So at this point, we pick up the story Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. They've made it now through the night. They've survived the night. The angels are with Lot and his wife and his daughters in their house. Now, Genesis 19, verse 15. We have it on the screens. You can follow along in your Bibles as well. With the coming of dawn, right, the sun's just peeking over the horizon. The angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, this is Lot, the men grasped his hand, the hands of his wife and of his two daughters, led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Now we're going to see in this text this morning some characteristics of the Lord. We're going to kind of focus on who the Lord is specifically and what he's doing in the life of Lot and in the life of his family. And the first truth I want you to see very clearly is found in the end of chapter 16, number one. The Lord's mercy is revealed. In this very moment, we're going to see very clearly the mercy of the Lord. Now, in our study in history, we're familiar with this account. We probably could all recount the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know where the story's going. We've been around, most of us, long enough to hear it and understand it. But we've kind of been working through this process in our study, building up to this point. And in our study in the book of Genesis, at this point, the time has come. All the evil of the city, all the sin of the city, all the wickedness has been seen. The Lord has seen it. The angels have seen it. He's aware of all the issues. God's going to destroy the city, and he's going to do it now. But I want you to notice with me in verse 16 something amazing. Because we're going to kind of get a picture again of Lot when we see his response. The angels say, hey, it's time to go. You need to hurry. And by the way, we'll just pause for a second. You, you need to make a note to yourself. File this somewhere in the back of your brain. If an angel of the Lord ever tells you to hurry, you should hurry. Okay? You've been warned. So the angel says, hurry, it's time to get out. We're going to destroy the city. Now verse 16, this is Lot, when he hesitated. You see that? 
If you're taking notes, you got your Bible, you ought to circle or underline or kind of make, make that word hesitated known because that's an awfully important word because it helps us kind of delve into and get a picture of the heart of this man. See, Lot, surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by evil, did not want to leave the city. In fact, the Bible tells us that these angels literally had to drag him out of town. They physically had to get him by the hand, get his wife by the hand, and get the daughters by the hand. And we look at this account and we we understand the city of Sodom and we understand the wickedness and we understand the evil and we know what Lot has been through and we know what's about to happen and we ask ourselves, why in the world did Lot hesitate? He didn't want to leave. You understand that? Lot was unwilling to leave the city. Why would that be? We can debate a lot of different things, but I think it becomes clear as we understand more and more about who Lot was and what he desired. Lot, very simply, had chosen the things of the world over the things of the Lord. You understand that? In the wickedness of the world, in the evil of this city, in all the things that these people had done, and we've kind of been very clear about some of the things that he's been involved in, and all the things that we understand, Lot chose to love the world more than he chose to love the things of the Lord. One writer said it like this. Lot was so attached to this present world of family and friends and power and material things that he just could not bear the thought of leaving it all behind. He felt more secure inside an evil city than outside of it with God. 1 John 2 sheds some light on this situation. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, if you're like me, you read this account and, and you read the story of Lot and you in your mind are thinking, what is this guy thinking? <laughs> How could he live in this city? How could he be surrounded by this wickedness? How could he be involved in all this evil and yet still choose to hesitate when the Lord calls? And why did he choose the things of the world over the things of the Lord? And then I'm reminded of myself. And you're probably reminded of yourself. And although we probably wouldn't fit into the same category of Lot as far as being involved in all the evil and wicked things that he's done, we probably wouldn't phrase it like that. We probably wouldn't understand it quite like this. But a lot of us over the different times of our lives, some of us are doing it right now, have chosen to follow the things of the world instead of the things of the Lord. Some of us have been called by the Lord to do something. Hurry, go do this, accomplish this, and we've chosen to hesitate, haven't we? Maybe we find ourselves more in common with Lot than we thought. Because we're not awfully careful the world and all that it offers begins to surround us and tempt us and eventually overtake us. And before we know it, we've chosen the world instead of the Lord. And so I started thinking through that a little bit this week. And I started asking myself some questions about my life 
And I think any time that we're confronted with a truth like this, it's important for us to kind of be self-reflective and to be honest with ourselves and to look in the mirror. And so I've listed four things I want you to kind of think through. Signs that maybe you're stuck in the world not following the Lord. Signs that you're hesitating to do what the world's called you to do instead of what the Lord has called you to do. I want to give you those things. And as I give them to you, I want you to examine your own heart. I want you to examine your own life. Here's the first thing. Maybe you're stuck in the world, not willing to follow the Lord if your goals are worldly and not spiritual. You know, if your goals are more worldly than they are spiritual, then you're stuck in the world. You're hesitating. Now, we all have goals. Some of them are written, some of them are not. But I can assure you that all of our goals are similar or a lot of our goals are similar. And some of us have goals of making more money or climbing the corporate ladder or becoming more successful. And and there's not necessarily anything wrong with those. But if those are your only goals and you don't have any spiritual things in mind, maybe you're stuck in the world. When you begin to think about your life and the goals of your life and the decisions that you're making... Do those decisions revolve around financial security, a comfortable living? Do those goals fall in line with what the world tells you you ought to be doing? Or do you have goals that instead are spiritual, that are honoring to the Lord? One writer asked a very interesting question. How are my goals in life different than those of the guy next door who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Hmm. See, if I look at my neighbor who doesn't know Christ and I see his goals and my goals and his goals are the same, there's no different. Maybe I'm stuck in the world. Maybe I'm not doing the things the Lord has called me to do. Maybe I'm hesitating to follow him with all my heart. Here's the second way I think we can know Maybe you're stuck in the world if your morals are questionable. Lot does some very shady, confusing, immoral, evil things. And he does them kind of when the pressure is on. And so we begin to ask ourselves the question, when the pressure's on me, do maybe I set my morals aside? Do I set my ethics aside because I know it's the wrong thing to do, but I know it's going to be good for me and so I do it anyway? Or I know it's going to be good for business and so I do it anyway. Or I know it's going to help me reach these worldly goals that I've set for myself. And I'm I'm going to kind of skew the lines a little bit, but I'm going to do it anyway. See, if we find ourselves kind of setting our morals and our ethics and good decision and wisdom aside, if those things become questionable in our lives, then maybe we're stuck in the world. Maybe we're hesitating much like Lot did. Here's the third thing I think we consider. Maybe you're stuck in the world not following the Lord if you're more known for your status in worldly affairs than you are for your faith. Maybe somebody would say this about you. Man, that guy's a savvy businessman. He's good at his business. Maybe somebody would say that lady is really good with finances. Guys, maybe somebody would say, that guy's an incredible hunter or he can hit a softball a long way. (laughs) Not necessarily anything wrong with being a good businessman or good with finances or a good hunter. 
But are you known for those things instead of being known as a prayer warrior? Are you known for those things instead of being known as a godly man, a godly father, a godly husband? Are you known for those things instead of being a person who's interested in sharing their faith wherever they are? Because I promise you, we we could go around the room and talk about good business and, and people that are successful in the world, and then we could talk about people that are prayer warriors and evangelistic, couldn't we? We know the difference. And I wonder if we aspire to status in the world instead of the faith that the Lord calls us to. Here's the fourth thing I think we can think of. Another sign that you're stuck in the world, you aren't willing to give up the things of the world. You're just trying to hold on to everything you can. It's a picture of who Lot was. Lot was told to flee the city and he was so interested in the stuff. He was so interested in the status. He was so interested in the things of the city. He was literally at that moment choosing between life and death. And he teetered because he wasn't quite sure which one he wanted. See, the thing about Lot that we need to understand is that he could not have saved anything even if he had remained When we strive for all the things of the world, we need to understand we're not taking any of those things with us. And a hundred years from now, nobody's going to care what you had anyway. So are you making eternal differences? Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Christ says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure's in the things of the world instead of the things of the Lord, you're probably stuck. You're probably hesitant to follow the will of the Lord. But I just want to encourage you. Because I think we all find ourselves somewhere in these categories, don't we? Myself included. There's a little bit of us in probably every one of these things. But I just want to encourage you. There is no greater joy than a life lived in obedience to the Lord. If you've been there, you understand it very clearly. If you haven't, I pray that the Lord shows you exactly what that looks like. But the Lord wants to bless you and the Lord wants to use you. And sometimes we just got to get unstuck. You understand? Sometimes we just got to say, you know, the things of the world are enticing. But Lord, you've called me to go. You've called me to hurry. You've called me to accomplish these things. I'm not going to wait around on the world. I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. But in this, kind of foundational to this in verse 16, I think we see the heart of the Lord because we see a man now that's hesitated, a man that's interested in the things of the world, a man who said really in in no uncertain terms, Lord, I'm not real interested in following you. I'm not real interested in doing what you're going to say. And so I'm just going to kind of hang around and think it through a little bit, Lord. And in this moment, we see the mercy of the Lord in the second part of verse 16. The men, these are the angels, grabbed the hands in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters, led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. I don't know about you, but when I find myself stuck in the world, when I find myself hesitating, when I find myself seeking the things that are not of the Lord, it's awfully comforting and reassuring to me that in those moments the Lord will have mercy on me. That the Lord still loves me 
Love those that are called according to his purpose. And it reminds me and it paints a picture all the way centuries later to Christ. And I'm reminded of the passage in Romans that tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, see, Jesus gave us this and he offers us salvation not because of our goodness, but because of his mercy. Because of his love for us. Now verse 17 as we continue. As soon as they brought them out, again there's this picture of the angels at least at the minimum leading Lot and his family. I think it probably became a little more like they carried him Dragged them kicking and screaming possibly. But verse 17, as soon as they brought them out, one of them said, these are the angels again, flee for your lives. Here's the second reminder. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. By the way, I don't have time to get in this verse 17. But there's a whole sermon in there about running away from sin. There's a whole sermon in there about fleeing the evil of the world. The angels say, get away, flee to the mountains, or you're going to be swept away. Verse 18, again, into the heart of Lot. But Lot said, no, 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 my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes. You've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look here. Is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. By the way, Lot can't stand to be outside of kind of the hustle and the bustle of the city life. You see that? He can't stand to be alone. He's drawn to it even now. Verse 21, he said to them, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zor. Now verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the city and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Here's the second thing we see. We understand the mercy of the Lord, but number two, in this text, the Lord's wrath is revealed. The Lord's wrath is revealed. Now, some people have written extensively about exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the cities of the plain. And there's a lot of interesting archaeological discussion because they can't find the cities. They're not sure where they were. Well, they can't find the cities because the Lord completely destroyed them. But there are remains that they found. They found things buried. It's interesting. There are things in the south part of the Dead Sea, large structures they can't quite explain. And some archaeologists believe those are remains of some of these ancient cities. But people ask, how did this happen? Was it a natural disaster? Maybe it was, a, maybe it was some sort of a volcano that erupted. Maybe there were some tar pits and some underground. These scientists have written about underground things that would have burned. And maybe the volcanoes caught these things on fire. And There's all sorts of things that could have happened. But I'll tell you what Adam believes. Adam believes this was a supernatural event when the Lord literally rained down fire from heaven. You say, why would he do something like that? Because these people were wicked and sinful and they had to be punished. Now, when I begin to talk about stuff like this and I talk about the wrath of the Lord, some people get a little squeamish, not comfortable. 
Because we want to think about the love of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. And that's absolutely true. We should think about those things. That is who the Lord is. But the Lord is also just. And the Lord hates sin. And when the Lord looks upon sin, that sin has to be punished. And when that sin goes on and on and on, the, the, the display of the power of the Lord is oftentimes through his wrath. In fact, we could say that divine wrath is God's righteous anger and punishment provoked by sin. You say, do we, do we read about that anywhere else? I mean, I see it in Sodom and Gomorrah, but do, do we see it anywhere else? It's all through the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to read the Old Testament, you, you would see God's wrath toward the rebellious Israelites. Time and time again, the Lord punished them. Time and time again, because of their sin and their separation from the Lord, they were punished and they experienced the wrath of the Lord. We see it against the pagan neighbors of the Israelites, the Canaanites, so on and so forth. You can read all these different people that were punished by the Lord because of their sinfulness. We studied several weeks ago how the Lord destroyed the earth with a flood. We'll see if you were to continue to study through the book of Genesis and into Exodus, you would see that through the plagues in Egypt, the Lord displayed his wrath. We see his power now in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not really a question of if the Lord is wrathful. It's a question of when does he use it because we see it over and over again. A.W. Pink says this. It's sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology or at least they wish were no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. But what do the scriptures say? As we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the fact of his wrath... He's not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. Now, you've listened to me preach long enough to know I don't, I don't harp on this idea. But I think when we come to these passages of Scripture, we ought to consider them. And we ought to be reminded of them. And I'm of the opinion that at least in the Western world, Christianity has gotten to this dull, deluded, weak place because we've forgotten the power of the Lord. We don't want to talk about his power and his wrath. We don't want to talk about how he hates sin. And when we don't want to talk about that, it allows us to justify our actions because sin is not as big of a deal maybe as we thought it was. And God doesn't care about it quite as much as we thought he did. And so we can take the sin in our lives and we can justify the sin and we can sweep it under the rug and we cannot be concerned about it because obviously the Lord is a God of forgiveness and love and he doesn't care about our sins either. That's just not true biblically. It's just not true biblically. We see that God is a God of love and absolute forgiveness, but he's also a God of justice. And we read that sin is involved time and time again. We read about his wrath. Jeremiah chapter 30, 23 and 24. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath. A driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. 
Romans chapter 1, New Testament, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and the wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. On and on and on this scripture goes and on and on the list goes of the power of God and the fury of the Lord against sin. Here's the bottom line. Here's kind of the summary. God hates sin and brings his judgment swiftly and powerfully against it. Now maybe that scared some of you. Because here's where your thoughts ought to go when you are encountered and you're confronted by the wrath of the Lord against sin. Here's where your thoughts ought to go. Well, I'm a sinful person. And I've made mistakes, and I make mistakes on a regular basis, and I know that I've done things that I shouldn't be doing. What about my sin, Adam? I know I've sinned. I know that I've failed. What about my sin? Well, here's the beautiful part of understanding the complete picture of Scripture. We begin to understand very clearly in our study that because of our sin, Because of our wretchedness, because of our evil, we needed a sacrifice for us. We needed somebody to stand in our place. Because we are sinful, we do make mistakes. We can't come before a holy God because he turns his heart and his eyes away from sin. So how do we get back to the Lord in our sinfulness? We need somebody to stand in our place. We need somebody to bridge that gap. We need somebody to do something to restore this relationship that we've broken through our sinfulness, our separation from the Lord. We need somebody to bridge that gap. That's Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your place. I'm going to come and I'm going to stand in the gap for you. I'm going to come and all the, the punishment and the wrath that we deserve is placed upon Christ. Do you understand that? Jesus dies on the cross and he says, you know, Adam Camp is a wretched sinner. And he's made countless mistakes in his life. And he has stepped away from the things of the Lord over and over. He's an utter failure in the eyes of the Lord. And there's nothing he can do to stand before a holy God. He's got no hope. And Christ says, I love him enough, I'll take his place. I love him enough, I'll, I'll stand in the gap. I love him enough, Lord, and all the punishment that's due to him... I'll take, I'll die on the cross and I'll bear all that he should bear because I love him. See, when we understand the wrath of God, it really forces us to contemplate who Christ is and all Christ has done. And it ought to lead us to a place of absolute worship. Thank you, Father, for giving Thank you, Father, for not pouring down your wrath upon me and my family. Thank you for not sending fire and brimstone to destroy this place right now because we know we deserve it. We know our hearts. We know our thoughts. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. And even in the midst of your wrath, thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. It's a picture of his love for us. Now, verse 27, as we kind of finish up this morning. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Now, remember where Abraham has been during all this. He's just kind of waiting. He's begged of the Lord. He's prayed. He asked the Lord to spare the city. He got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember, he had a conversation with the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke 
rising from the land like smoke from a furnace, right? Everything's just on fire. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Here's the third truth. We see in this passage the Lord's faithfulness is revealed. Even in the midst of sin, God is faithful. Now I'm reminded in this passage of scripture of who Abraham was. You remember we, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Abraham, Abraham had prayed for the city. He knew what was going to happen. He prayed specifically for the city. You remember the discussion, Lord, if you can find this many people that are righteous, will you spare the city? If you can find this many people and this many people, and then whittle it all the way down to, to 10 people. Now the Lord already knew what was going to happen, right? But the Lord said, okay, if I can find 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. Well, we know from the Lord's action, he obviously didn't find 10 people. But I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of the Lord in Abraham's life because Abraham, Abraham had prayed and he'd asked the Lord to be faithful and to be merciful. And I'm reminded of Genesis when the Lord first called Abraham and he said to him, I will make you into a great nation. Again, this is just, we just see this, this incredible story building, this pattern building. We just kind of build upon statement after statement of who the Lord is and what he's called Abraham to do and his faithfulness. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I fully believe that the Lord spared Lot because of the prayers and the faithfulness of Abraham and because of the promise the Lord had made to him. It's a picture of his goodness. It's a picture of his faithfulness. It's a picture of of using this man, Abraham, to accomplish incredible things and and allowing the faithfulness of Abraham to to save this wretched man who lived in this wretched place. And I, I just challenge you with two ideas. Which one of these guys are you this morning? Are you you Lot who is just kind of tarrying in the world, just kind of hanging out? You just like it too much and you think, Lord, I, I know you've called me to do some things and you're telling me to hurry even now, Lord, but I'm just, I'm just enjoying this too much. Are you this guy or are you Abraham who's faithful to the Lord? And you may say something like this, Lord, I'm not, I'm not perfect, I, I know that, but, but I want to beg of you, Father. I want to beg of you, Lord, to save these people. To show them your mercy and to show them your grace. I, I'm, I'm very challenged by this idea of praying for the lost. When's the last time we prayed that the Lord would spare a wicked city? When's the last time we just begged of the Lord in, in persistent prayer that he would save people within the city? Lord, raise someone up within that city to, to preach the gospel. Or send someone into that place, Lord, that can tell them the truth. Or create within my heart, Lord, a desire to go and to share and to be different. Because we're going to find ourselves in one of these two places. Either hanging out in the world or seeking him with all of our heart. And I just want you to understand very simply this morning. God's got a plan. And even if you find yourself mired in the things of the world and you're stuck and you just can't seem to get out. God wants to use you. God wants to save you. 
He wants to literally take you by the hand and pull you out of your sinfulness and deliver you so you can accomplish great things through him. The question is, the question is not, is he going to be faithful? The question is, are we going to be obedient? Will you trust him with your life? Will you give him everything? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It's sometimes difficult. Father, sometimes it's hard for us to understand and hard for us to comprehend sometimes your power. Sometimes we don't feel comfortable, Lord, thinking about judgment and wrath. But I pray, Lord, that we would take the truth of your word, we would take the truth of scripture and we would apply it to our lives. And we would understand that even in the midst of great sin and evil, there is hope in Christ. And so, Lord, I I pray right now for that person right now that's listening to this prayer. I pray for that person right now that's stuck in the world and stuck in sin, that you would remind us of your goodness. That we would remember the wrath and the punishment of sin that's due to us. But through your goodness and your mercy and the grace you show in our lives, you've offered us hope in Christ. And so I pray for that person right now, Father, that's hiding from you or running from you or stuck in the world. You would open their eyes to the truth of what they need. And I pray they would run with all of their being to you. I pray they would fall at your feet. I pray they would repent of your sins and ask Christ to be the Lord of their lives. Father, you use us to do great things, to serve you. And we're going to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the chance to pray at the altars. We always do. Maybe you need to pray for that person that the Lord has convicted you of that needs prayer. Maybe you need to pray about being stuck in the things of the world. Maybe the Lord wants to use you for his honor and glory. But this is your time to respond. You come as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.